Hello, and welcome to this week's sermon podcast from Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Kenwood. Here we preach the good news of Jesus Christ. Whether you find the message to be uplifting or challenging, comforting or even unsettling, we hope it'll help you grow in faith and your relationship with God. Thank you for listening. To God be the glory. The first reading is from the 11th chapter of Numbers. Then the foreign rabble who were traveling with the Israelites began to crave the good things of Egypt, and the people of Israel also began to complain. Oh, for some meat, they exclaimed. We remember the fish we used to eat for free in Egypt, and we had all the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic we wanted. But now our appetites are gone. All we see is this manna. Moses heard all the families standing in the doorways of their tents whining, and the Lord became extremely angry. Moses was also very aggravated. And Moses said to the Lord, Why are you treating me, your servant, so harshly? Have mercy on me. What did I do to deserve the burden of all these people? Did I give birth to them? Did I bring them into the world? Why did you tell me to carry them in my arms like a mother carries a nursing baby? How can I carry them to the land you swore to give their ancestors? Where am I supposed to get meat for all these people? They keep whining to me, saying, give us meat to eat. I can't carry all these people by myself. The load is far too heavy. If this is how you intend to treat me, just go ahead and kill me. Do me a favor and smear me this misery. Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather before me 70 men who are recognized as elders and leaders of Israel. Bring them to the tabernacle to stand there with you. So Moses went out and reported the Lord's words to the people. He gathered the 70 elders and stationed them around the tabernacle. And the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to Moses. Then he gave the 70 elders the same spirit that was upon Moses. And when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied. But this never happened again. Two men, Eldad and Medad, had stayed behind in the camp. They were listed among the elders, but they had not gone out to the tabernacle. Yet the spirit rested upon them as well. So they prophesied there in the camp. A young man ran and reported to Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, son of Nun, who had been Moses' assistant since his youth, protested, Moses, my master, make them stop. But Moses replied, are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them all. Here ends the reading. Please read responsibly with me from Psalm 19. The instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. The commandments of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. Reverence for the Lord is pure, lasting forever. They are more desirable than gold, even the finest gold. They are 
They are a warning to your servant, a great reward for those who obey him. Keep your servant from deliberate sins. Don't let them control me. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you. The second reading is from the fifth chapter of James. Are any of you suffering hardships? You should pray. If any of, are any of you happy? You should sing praises. Are any of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick, and the Lord will make you well. And if you have committed any sins, you will be forgiven. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Elijah was as human as we are, and yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. Then when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain and the earth began to yield its crops. My dear brothers and sisters, if someone among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back, you can be sure that whoever brings the sinner back from wandering will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. Here ends the reading. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. Our gospel lesson today comes from the ninth chapter of Mark. John said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone using your name to cast out demons, but we told him to stop because he wasn't in our group. Don't stop him, Jesus said. No one who performs a miracle in my name will soon be able to speak evil of me. Anyone who's not against us is for us. If anyone gives you even a cup of water because you belong to the Messiah, I tell you the truth, that person will surely be rewarded. But if you cause one of these little ones who trust in me to fall into sin, it'd be better for you to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone hung around your neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter eternal life with only one hand than to go into unquenchable fires of hell with two hands. If your foot causes you to sin, cut that off. It's better to enter life with only one foot than to be thrown into the hell with two feet. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It's better to enter the kingdom of God with only one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the maggots never die and the fire never goes out. For everyone will be tested with fire. Salt is good for seasoning, but if it loses its flavor, how do you make it salty again? You must have the qualities of salt among yourselves and live in peace with each other. Here ends the reading. You may be seated. Oof, a doof, huh? That's a rough one. That got, that got pretty, pretty rough. A lot of cutting and gouging and fires and... Woo, okay. Well, I'm going to be honest with you about this text. This is what's strange. This passage, I, it might be one of the most oft-repeated ones I use. Not the gouging part, but the first bit. Um, the first part I definitely talk about a lot because um, I really think there is something to be said here when we're talking about the state of the church. 
Um, I talk a lot about the church because I work in the church, but because I'm surrounded by church people all the time, um, we talk about the state of things. Um, I always hear people talking about their experiences. There is a vast diversity of experiences of the church, some longer than others in experience. And a lot of times I hear people talking about is how the church changes, how it's changed for them, how they've seen it change. One of the things I hear a lot about, especially from us who dwell in a mainline denomination, is a concern about how those mainline denominations are shrinking. Pastors talk a lot about this. Um, they're worried about this kind of thing. Everyone's kind of concerned that it seems to be changing more and more, and that some folks just are deciding that's not really a priority in their life, to be a part of a community of faith. And that frustrates people, understandably that people would decide not to go to church. But I think what might frustrate people more is when people decide to go to other kinds of churches. Ooh, that gets people like, what? that's not the kind I like. Why would they go there? It frustrates people. They talk about it. And what they do is it's sometimes a, just a different style, right? Like some would describe them as maybe like more contemporary. Well, that's a strange word because we're all contemporary. We're here right now. So this is also contemporary. But... um. They're talking about the style of it. Specifically, the most ire is always usually thrown at large churches, mega churches. Y'all ever heard of one of those? I feel like you have. You have. Me too. Um, and then a really unfortunate thing happens when people start talking about them. Um, young and old alike, if you're from one of these traditional models and you're still a part of it, um, we like to point out how different they are from us. Um, how maybe perhaps they're lacking one of those things that are just so essential to us, how we think it's so important to do it this way, and they don't. And we sit around and wonder, without that, how are they thriving? And so many churches that have that thing we believe is so important are struggling. And at our worst, we may say things about those churches that don't paint them in such a positive light. Anyone guilty of that one? Yeah, we all are. We do this. And I'm reminded of this text. Lord, psst, like a hall monitor, Lord, um, they're doing something over there that is not, look, they're not one of us. They're casting out demons, Lord, and they didn't go through any of the catechesis I had to go through, and that's crazy. I don't know why they think they can just do this. They don't know us. They don't follow us. They don't do the things we do. Um, I think you should know about it, and what are we going to do about them? And Jesus, I imagine, looked very puzzled, like, so what are they doing? They're doing good things, like casting out demons. And he goes, yeah, yeah, you heard me right, J-Man. And he's like, okay, um, in my name? And he goes, yeah, there you go, you're getting it now. And Jesus is like, it's good, though, they're helping people. And he goes, yes, in your name. Hmm. And they're like, sounds like my kind of people, right? Jesus loves it. He's like, okay, what are we doing? They're not against us, they're for us. They're doing acts of power in my name to help bless the world. And I have to remember this verse every time I start playing the comparison game. When I hear someone else playing that game, pointing out perceived failings or shortcomings, inadequacies of their theology, whatever. And I look at it, and when you get down to it, the only reason I'm griping is to help what? My own insecurity. What are they... If you think about it, it's funny that the disciples are frustrated because they have literally, in the Bible, had a tough time casting out demons. They're not that good at it. They come back and go, Jesus, we're having a hard time with these deeds of power. And then they show up and a bunch of randos are doing it. Like, bah! 
penalty. They did it wrong. Fix it. And Jesus is puzzled. And I think we do that. This came up this week, this idea of like they, them. It came up this week. Um, my daughter, Amelia, she's in second grade now. And so we're getting into that Harry Potter. It's like written for her. She adores this stuff. And we're in the second book. And um, we're sitting there. You all know, if you know this, you know there's a little boy in this story that's very aggravating and says some really heinous stuff for a child. His name's Malfoy. You guys know this kid. If you've read the book, he's a little boy who says all these really nasty things about the other kids, particularly our main character and his friends. So as a reader, Amelia just goes, you know, I'm getting really sick of that kid. She goes, I do not like that kid at all. Because all he does, she says, talk about how they're less than, they're less than, like he's so great and everyone's just so pathetic. And that's what the character does. Everything he says is about how they're less powerful, less wealthy, less intelligent, less noble, less pure, less, 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 less. He's just, he even starts saying really violent and nasty things about people he thinks are less than him. Saying, I wish they'd be expelled. Worse, he says, I wish they'd be killed. He says terrible things. And Amelia just goes, ugh. You know, I wish, there's a monster in the book. She goes, I wish the monster would kill him. And I went, whoa. I go, you want him dead? And she goes, Dad, it's a book. Come on. Like, how deep are you? Like, what is this? And I was like, okay, fair. But I'm a little alarmed my daughter wanted some child to die in a book. Um, and uh, we asked, what, what is this about? And Emily, my wife who is uh, enamored, her passion is early childhood development, she leans in right away and she goes, hey, Mia, who do you think taught Malfoy to talk that way? Who do you think taught him to say those things about other kids? And Amelia, having read the book, and anyone reading it would know exactly who taught him. It was his father, she says. His father is so cruel. He always talks that way about all the kids' parents. He always talks that way about all of society, about how despicable it is, and how revolting, and how it's regressed, and how it's so pathetic, and full of failures, and weak people, and you need fortitude, strength, and power if you ever want to get this thing back on track. And he just dogs on people. Emily continued to ask her then, so do you think Malfoy learned something listening to that all the time as a child? And Amelia says, sure, probably. We ask then a final question. Do you think that little boy, the mean little boy, might be a little worried that if he doesn't do everything to his best of ability, that his dad might one day say some of those kind of nasty things about him if he ends up measuring a little too short, not so talented, not so gifted and exceptional? Do you think this boy is scared that he's actually less than so he spends a lot of time telling everyone else why they are so inferior. And she goes, yeah, he's probably not a bad person, but it's all he knows how to be. But still, he's pretty awful. And I go, okay, fair. He is kind of that way. But she was on to it, right? She got it. It's all he knows. She isn't wrong. He's a terrible character at this point. And... Aren't we all, really, when we bend in on our own insecure self and start spending our time taking a posture of criticism towards everyone we see, of judgment, speaking ill of one another? We have an opinion about where you should go to church, 
why you like it. That's why you're here, right? We have opinions also, though, about other people. Have you ever spent any time talking about someone else and just full critique? Their approach to faith, their approach to life, their approach to love, their approach to lifestyle, another approach perhaps to governance and politics. Maybe we've had an opinion or a critique about how they respond to misfortune, how they respond to injustice, how they voice their concerns, how they hold themselves in a manner that expresses themselves. How are they doing it? Are they doing it right? And we think to ourselves, you know what? That's not my kind of person. That's not how I would do it. That's not how it should be done. Jesus, they're doing it wrong. They're doing it wrong. All of us do this because it's downright normal to look at one another, to notice flaws about each other, to see the transgressions and have opinions, hold opinions against them in their missteps, and determine the quality or character of a person. But what's clear here is that Jesus, in this story, is very concerned with this normal behavior we practice. In fact, he'd say this behavior is detrimental to the community of God, Because this behavior keeps us from peace. In fact, it just keeps us in combat. More than that, it keeps us angry, suspicious, and it feeds this desire to judge, to make ourselves feel right. The reason Jesus is concerned beyond how it hurts community now then is that it hurts future communities as well. As Amelia pointed out, with this Malfoy, he learns it from his dad. His dad did it, now he does it. Guess what? What if it keeps going? We have this forever. Last week, uh, Jesus had a child in his arms, right? The kids are still there. This is a continuation. And he's saying, these kids are here. Let me reference them for a second. This behavior is an utter stumbling block for these little ones. It's a stumbling block. We're going to teach them the same thing. We're not an island. We're informed by the things around us. When you were children, you learned things you wanted to imitate about the people around you, and you learned things you definitely did not want to imitate in other people. But what happens when we're formed by these actions? If you wonder where we get the habit, if you have that, like we all do, of speaking ill of one another, look no further than your own experience. Can you think of anyone in your life that you remember being very critical? You were worried to disappoint. Can you think of those people, even people now that you admire, people you look up to, people you want to learn from? Think of the people you spend your time with. Think of the values you share with your community. And tell me, are there voices, are there personalities that spend their time as specifically just being cultural critics, judging, condemning, and measuring people? Lower, higher. Quality, not so much. Because Jesus has an opinion about those voices, our own included. Cut them out. Lose them. Not the people, not the relationships, but that tendency we have of mimicking it the minute we encounter it, of repeating it, of imitating. Because he says this way is the opposite of the kingdom. It's dangerous. Why it's so frustrating that Jesus would go into this? Because we are blinded by that sense of constant cultural critique. We're so blinded, we can't even see good when it's looking us in the face. The disciples just witnessed healings. And they're like, oh, yuck, who are they? They, don't, they can't imagine something good coming from this. I have a challenge for you. I wonder if we think sometimes we can't see anything good. I want you to 
close your eyes for a second and think of a person in your life that, boy, howdy, do you stand on the other side of any matter, and they are just so frustrating to you, so irritating. You cannot abide them. Think of that person. Now imagine they're in a hospital. Don't get too excited. They're not hurt. They're standing next to a hospital bed. And they've got a cool cloth in their hand and they're wiping it across someone's forehead. This person's suffering from a fever, perhaps. And this person you can't stand, they look concerned, genuinely. Concerned for the well-being of this other person. And they're trying to comfort them in their healing. Is that person doing a good thing? Or are we asking, what's the angle? Are we asking, yeah, they do it for them, but what about others? What about what they've done in the past? What about the things they've done and the mistakes they've made and the judgments I hold against them that are firm and secure? I bet they wouldn't do that for me. There's a reason they're doing this. That's so gross, right? Isn't it awful we can't even see this humanity in one another? Jesus worries that this way, this scapegoatism, this thing that puts people on crosses because we cannot abide them anymore, they need to die, this whataboutism, this blaming, judging, measuring, it keeps all of our eyes, all of our attention on people's failures, on their sin. We worship sin in this way. We worship it. It consumes us. Sin, 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 failures of others. And we fail to see the beauty, the good that is present in all of creation. We are all made in the image of God. We are capable of love. In fact, we all want it. We all want connection. There's a reason that little boy in that book is so mean because he's scared. He wants connection. Better to have a millstone around your neck, it says, than to keep this infection spreading by feeding this anger and judgment against one another. What's so frustrating about a text like this, I'll be real honest, is how absolutely spot on Jesus is and how convicted I feel by it. Because we do this, and I do this. We're guilty of this all the time. And the way I get out of it is I go, yeah, well, what do you do? I can't change the way I feel about things. I don't know how to control that. It's judgment. It's normal. But Jesus has something. He says, you really do need to try to knock it off. Cut it off. Pluck it out. I mean it. It's bad. It's a bad, bad habit. Before you come at me, he says, with how bad someone else is, please, for a second, just look to yourself and know you aren't so different, guys. In fact, in the story later, they find out they know those guys. Those are like colleagues in ministry. What good do we really think comes of speaking this way and trying to sabotage the works of others that are seeking to do good? What good do I really think will come of my distrust and anger towards my neighbors? There's this bit at the end. This is what ties it up, the salt bit. Salt brings out good flavors in food. Um, I, I, uh, you ever salt or sweat something? Like you put salt on like produce and this liquid starts coming out. Eggplant's a good one. This bitter brown liquid starts dripping out of it once you put salt on it and leave it there because it pulls out the flavors, good and bad, but it leaves behind. Ooh, really good eggplant. Very good. Highly recommend it. It brings out salt, what we're called to be. What we're called to be is to bring out the fullness of godly potential. Good. Goodness. Mercy. We have a clear directive. 
when we are confronted with our own sense of judgment, anger, distrust, insecurity, do good. Do something positive. Extract the bitterness. Bring out good potential. Model for that little boy in that book who has seen nothing but poison. Show him what good looks like. Against our base instincts, seek peace, it concludes with. Seek peace with one another. Seek peace specifically for each one of us. Here's the challenge with them. Only you know who they are. Seek peace for a glimpse of the kingdom where there are no more enemies. Amen. Thanks again for listening to this week's message from Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Kenwood. Please browse our website for other opportunities to grow in faith or serve the Lord. If you are able to worship with us at any time, we would be most honored by your presence.